Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We're in Parshat Shoftim. We are in uh, the last third, as we've talked about, of every Torah portion. Because at Simchat Torah, we will reset. We will start Genesis again, and we will start at the beginning of every Torah portion and, and read the first third of every Torah portion next year or this next Jewish year, which means very soon. Yeah. So we're in Shoftim. We're in the part of Deuteronomy uh, where we are getting a little bit about uh, some more stuff about administration. Whenever we're seeing repetitions in Deuteronomy, why are we seeing repetitions of previous stuff? We've already had Moshe be told to set up administration. Somebody for tens, somebody for hundreds, somebody for thousands. So why are we getting more stuff in Deuteronomy that we've already seen before? Because it's second telling. It's the do. So part of it is Moshe's recounting some things for the people. But when we get you shall do this and you shall do that, but we already got that somewhere, why do we see it again here in Deuteronomy? Emphasis. Emphasis. Because we don't listen. How many times have I told you? Right. So we, what we always have to remember is Deuteronomy is a religious reform. Usually, if we see it again, there's a difference. Deuteronomy is a religious reform. So we are generally dealing with a concept we've had before, but Deuteronomy is going to have a different take on it. And whatever the Deuteronomist says, that is going to now be the practice, okay? Because they institute this reform when Deuteronomy was found, right? In the temple. Yes. This is a reconstruction. Deuteronomy is a reconstruction of earlier tradition. And do they know how it was found, where it was found, why it was found? Anybody want to say where it was found, how it was found? The woman who found it? What was it? Yeah. Uh, the scroll they found and then they shipped to the woman? They found, where did they find the scroll? In the temple. In the temple. In the temple. How, did you, how did you just find a scroll in the temple? They clean the temple regularly, presumably. How do you just find a scroll? It's really, really old. It was behind a wall. It was behind a wall. They were doing renovations. And they find the scroll of Deuteronomy. It seems old and it seems authoritative. If it's old and authoritative, you have to have somebody authenticate it. So they took it to Hulda the prophetess, who authenticated it as real. Real? She, right? They said, we'll take it to Hulda. She'll inquire of God, and then we'll know. Hulda apparently does so and authenticates this as legit, for real. Old. It is now authoritative. Something's going to be authoritative. In the ancient days, it had to be old. So this is all of Deuteronomy. Yes. Ah. That is the theory. That is the scholarly theory that the scroll they're talking about, the Sefer they're talking about, is Sefer Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, the scroll of Deuteronomy. Uh, because of its language, because of the, the turns of phrases that you are used in Deuteronomy, there's many indications that tell us this is written at a different period than most of the other texts. It is part of the Deuteronomic history. The school of D, the school of Deuteronomy, writes Deuteronomy and the Deuteronomic history. So it goes into kings, 
right? And so judges and king, like, so there's all this stuff written from the perspective of the Deuteronomist. Okay. Are we clear? If it reconstructs earlier things, what happens to all of the earlier things that... This is now authoritative. Okay. So we did The Supreme Court overturns yeah. something. It is now the law of the land. That we have a constitution, it was interpreted one way, now it's, right, we're going to have another law. So, so we just... Not bother with the right, earlier... Right, not bother with the earlier things. Because some things aren't overturned. Oh, okay. Right? So some some things are consistent. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Right? But all this, you know, there's other things that are very much in so the right in the interest of the Deuteronomist and in the interest of the folks who were implementing this religious reform. Right? And so one of the studies of Deuteronomy is to study what are those interests. Okay. What was this reform about? We, we read... Freaked everybody out, I know, but a couple of weeks ago, we read about sacred prostitutes in the Temple of Solomon that had to be kicked out, right? How did they get that? Right? So everyone was horrified and shocked when we looked at, right, was it judges or kings, whatever we looked at, the Deuteronomic history, and we looked at it, and it was talking about all these things that Josiah did, one of them kicking out all the sacred prostitutes from the temple, the worshipers of Baal and Asherah kicked them out of the temple and it's like, oh wait, what was happening? Right? So we know something about what the religious reform, right, is it's about. It makes so much clarity now to know this. Thank you. So that, so it's critical and it's why I keep hammering it because otherwise if we encounter this as a text just a part of the rest of the text we're not understanding why it's here. All right, so part of that is for me to explain why we're going to see what we're about to see, which I want everybody to just hang with me. We will work it through, I promise. Um, we're, we're, we'll work it through. So we are talking about a text that is written already at a time where there is a lot of upheaval. There is a lot of stuff going on in the region. Um, and... The two kingdoms are going to split, right? They're going to, because Israel falls, the north falls. Um, all right, so, so there's a lot going on, and it's a dangerous time. Israel has always been caught between major empires, always. And they've always been the victim of people trampling them on their way to conquer the other one. Right, So Israel's always been caught in the middle. It's always been tiny. We talked about the united monarchy of Israel and Judah. How long did that last? Less than 100 years. Okay? We think of it as, oh, ancient Israel. When, but less than 100 years. And it was, right? Assyria takes the north, right? So, so, so it's always volatile, but it's a really volatile time when, when the school of Deuteronomy, when, when they're writing and pushing this religious reform. And they've, obviously they've been in the land a super long time. Deuteronomy's put in the mouth of Moses, looking from across the Jordan towards the promised land, knowing he will never get there. Right? So everything we see in Deuteronomy is late. This is late material. 
So with late material, they have been in the land, inhabiting the land for a long, long time. Right? So, so, so the context is this is a late text. They've been in the land a long time. This religious reform is saying y'all have screwed everything up. You have not been living in line with the will of God, which is articulated here. Everything else you've been doing is a mess and a disaster, and part of it might have been true, but this is the real teaching about how you're supposed to live. All right, so we're supposed to start um, at 1914, somewhere around there. Um, all right. So let's, let's just start there and see where we go. And then we'll get to 20, and we're going to be okay. We're all going to take a deep breath. Okay. You shall not move your countrymen's landmarks set up by previous generations in the property that will be allotted to you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. All right, so already we know there's some kind of issue with people moving landmarks, right, set by previous generations, right? What does that mean, right? So as usual, people are fighting over real estate. Settlements, good, Harvey, right? So um, we're... Nothing changes, people, right? So there's obviously a lot of stuff going on with people claiming who, who owns what land and where are the boundaries of that property. Okay, go on. A single witness may not validate against a person any guilt or blame for any offense that may be committed. The case can be valid only on the testimony of two witnesses or more. If a man appears against another to testify maliciously, and gives false testimony against him, the two parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests or magistrates and authority at the time, and the magistrates shall make a thorough investigation. If the man who testified is a false witness, if he has testified falsely against his fellow, you shall do to him as he schemed to do to his fellow. Thus you will sweep out evil from your midst. Others will hear and be afraid, and such evil things will not again be done in your midst. Nor must you show pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Okay. So obviously there are some issues with the court system. Right? So this, so the Deuteronomist is saying, this, this reform is saying there must be, right? You can't have one one witness, right? Because you have to have two witnesses. This actually is halacha. This is Jewish law. This gets carried over into Jewish law. I saw him do it. I saw him standing over the body with a smoking gun. Too bad. Right? It's just too tempting to turn false witness against somebody that you have it out for. It's just too easy. And it's just too common. So... And it's a lot more—it's a lot more complicated than this, because in the Talmud it goes into great detail of what are the two witnesses, what if he saw and he forgot, what if he this, what if what if he that. It, it gets very, very complicated. Right. So the, because the rabbis want to make sure that it is almost impossible to find someone guilty of a capital crime. Remember, the rabbis, when they make these rules, have jurisdiction over nobody. Right? So it's like, go, go to whatever lengths you want. What they're trying to say is, Torah doesn't want us to ever 
institute capital punishment, even though, of course, if you murder someone on purpose, you should die. We understand that. But Torah tries to make it almost impossible. The halacha tries to make it almost impossible to prove. So the witness has to be this and has to be that and can't be this. Warned. And, right. And the man's got to be warned. If you do this, this will happen. Right. But Answer that question, Dana. Does it matter if it's a man or a woman? Of course. Well, I mean, in the Torah, it does specify. The witness it uses ish. Why? Which is a man. Why does it say a man? A A woman can lie? Or a person. A woman's not allowed to testify. Women are not allowed to testify. So it's irrelevant. It's complete. They're completely irrelevant as a category. Right. Testify comes from testes. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh my goodness. You swear on your testicles that what you're about to say is the truth. The testament. Testament. So I lost them already. So and that wasn't even the bad part. So so testimony testimony by its very by the very meaning of the word, you have to be a male to testify, right? So, look what you learn on Torah. <laughs> right? Never, never worry. We're always going to have an interesting moment. So, testify. So next, so now it's going to stay with you forever. Just like the word disseminate. I'm like, don't use that word. Use another word, please. Just use a different word. I don't like it. It's just a thing now. There's like an image, and I'm just. Can you pick another word? Thank you. All right. So, so, so this is about. So, a woman can't testify, nor, nor in biblical law, nor in rabbinic law. She cannot serve as a witness. All right. Has that been changed? No. No. So, still in, in signing a ketubah, you need two Jewish men. Yes. And and guess since it's almost impossible, I mean, to imagine. A deliberate capital crime committed in front of two witnesses. How do you ever resolve the equity of a real crime being committed? Yeah. Well, my my guess is in <coughs> biblical. It, it was it was clearer cut in biblical times, right? So two two guys are around the corner. You don't know that, and you stab somebody. Well, a rape. I mean, yeah, so, so if there are two people who see it, right, then it, it's clear and the person is, is killed. It's capital punishment. Um, but the rabbis are the ones who make it completely mesubach, completely complicated because they have no power to adjudicate capital crimes. And then again, so they can do what they want. Can I mean, women be get a get? Huh? A man has to sue for the get. A yes. Woman, right. Correct. Not get a get. Correct. An Israeli civil court, non religious court, can a woman testify? Yes. yes. It's only in religious court that she does. In so, Israel. So the woman who was raped can't testify in her own trial. Correct. She's no, well, she's not. Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. All right. She doesn't have So. But, you, but we also have to think of the role of testimony. If she can prove to the prosecutors privately that she has evidence or whatever. They believe her, right? The, I mean, it, it's, it's not just about two witnesses. There's other, you know what I mean? There's, there's different kinds of cases. There's different kind of, right? And with rape, don't even get me started. It's a whole nother, it's a whole nother thing. Um, all right. 
So, where are we? 20. Thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you. The law of talisman is right here, and people usually freak out about that too, so let me just be quick about it. Others will hear and be afraid. Right? The idea is you, you set it up so that false testimony is one of the worst, most dangerous things you can do, because otherwise you have no chance at a justice system that's going to in any way function, right? You just don't. We see it. We see it now, right? Who's credible? Who's not credible? Harvey Weinstein. You know, I mean, there's just so much about do you believe them? Do you not? Do you, I mean, so it's still, it's human nature. It's still going on. We're still wrestling with how do we get a justice system that actually works? So this is the Deuteronomist view that if you make it really, really super dangerous to give false testimony, it, it's one way to dissuade right people from deciding that's the way to get back at, at their neighbor. All right. Nor must you show pity, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So do, do we remember that the law of talisman, which this is saying, the Talian formula, is in Exodus in a form and is in Leviticus, right? So this is, this is talking about the punishment for intentionally causing bodily injury or death. If I intentionally cut off your arm... Thank you, Amy, for that to came so quickly. So if I, like, if I like, intentionally cut off your arm, the punishment is to be equal to me. So regardless of what my status is and the status of the person to whom I did it. In the ancient world, if I'm a peasant and I intentionally cut off the arm of a wealthy noble person, I could be put to death. That was standard. And the reverse? And the reverse, sure. All you did was clip my finger, but you're a peasant and I'm a nobleman, you die. The nobleman's not in any danger, right? So status mattered in terms of what the punishment was. Torah comes to say you can't do that. It mu- the, the punishment must directly be related to the crime. You can't take into account who these people are, or what their status is. So that's the law of Talion. That's why we have it. It can't mean literally put out their eye. If I, if I put out your eye, and then it says literally you're going to put out my eye, what if my other eye is blind? That's not justice. Because I've only injured one of your eyes, but now I have no sight. That is not justice. So that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about it needs to be fair, punishment, Suiting the crime, regardless of who the people involved are and their status. So the key here is what is not said. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't say. And it points right. out that fair and justice are not necessarily the same thing. Well, that you know, that you'll have to take up with legal <laughs> authorities. <laughs> All right. So the other reality that happens in the ancient world is the reality of war. So that is what's coming at chapter 20. So hold on, just, just take a breath. And Bert, start. <laughs> when you take the field against your enemies and see horses and chariots, forces larger than yours, have no fear of them. For the Lord your God, who brought you from the land of Egypt, is with you. Before you join battle, the priest shall come forward and address the troops. He shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, you are about to join battle with your enemy. Let not your courage falter. Do not be in fear or in panic or in dread of them. 
For it is the Lord your God who marches with you to do battle for you against your enemy to bring you victory. All right. So you have, you're going to war and the priest is called forward to say Shema Yisrael. Very much a Deuteronomy phrase, right? We always think of it in one place. Mm-hmm. It's all over the place. Mm-hmm. All right. So Shema Yisrael. Okay. What am I supposed to listen up? Right, as a Israelite in here, you're going to war this day against your enemy. It is really important that you not be afraid. In the ancient world, if you were afraid in battle, it meant you had no confidence in your deity. Because God was on your side. So this, because it is the it is the deity who fights the battle for you. Right. You are just the emissary of what the divine wants to have happen. So if you start freaking out when you see them coming, it means you think their God is stronger than your God. So it is not only not a good thing for the rest of the troops to see somebody freaking out, right? It spreads panic. So it's it's demoralizing. So that's one really important part of it. But the second part of it is it is essentially treason, Remember, there's no separation between human, what do you call it, authority and God's authority in the ancient world. God, it is a kingdom ruled by God, king of all kings. So, to, so, if, you say, if, so if you say, I believe we're going to get schmeiss today, in a sense, it's treason, right? Because you're saying, I don't believe our king is, is going to fight for us. And if you do think your king's going to fight for you, you think your king's going to lose? That's even worse. (laughs) Right? That God is so delusional, God doesn't even know God can't beat Baal. (laughs) Right? So when they lose, and they're sitting around the campfire (laughs) saying, oops, our God really isn't no, David, you're not thinking like an Israelite. When that's what you say as an Israelite, what did we do wrong? What did we mess up? What rule did we break? Did somebody poop in the camp? Because if somebody pooped in the camp, God can't be in the camp. So. Latrines have to be built outside an Israelite camp. Because the Israelite camp, if God is fighting on your behalf, God must be present. God's not going to be where there's poop. So it's that simple. It's that simple. Some, somebody pooped in the camp. Or got, right? So it's, it's what, did, what did we do that God did not fight on, victoriously on our behalf? It cannot be that there's an issue with God. That cannot be. So God gets a pass all the time. hundred percent. Could it be that they just didn't have strong enough faith? Sure. Yeah. Yes. Our faith wasn't strong enough, but generally, generally it tends to be about action. Somebody did something, broke a rule, you know what I mean? Or we didn't deserve it somehow because we didn't do something we were supposed to do or we did something we weren't supposed to do. Like, who, all right, who was at that Asherah party last night? Don't think we don't know, right? So... It wasn't witnessed, but somebody was out at the Asherah business, right? And now we're all schmeist. 
<laughs> Welcome back, Bert. <laughs> Verse 5. Then the officials shall address the troops as follows. Is there, any, is there anyone who has built a new house that has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his home, lest he die in battle and another dedicate it. Is there anyone who has planted a vineyard but has never harvested it? Let him go back to his home, lest he die in battle and another harvest it. Is there anyone who has paid the bride price for a wife, but who has not yet married her? Let him go back to his home, lest he die in battle and another marry her. The officials shall go on addressing the troops and say, Is there anyone afraid and disheartened? Let him go back to his home, lest the courage of his comrades flag like his. When the officials have finished addressing the troops, Army commanders shall assume command of the troops. All right. So we're gonna we have officials addressing the troop, and what's gonna happen now are the people who are gonna be excused from the war. There are times there is no being excused from the war. Not but even a bone spur. No, no. You have to do something. Right? There's times where everybody has to fight because it's that, it, like a defensive war. You, right. you, there are no excuses. You, you have to do something on behalf of the war effort. If it's a, if it's a, what's the opposite of that? <laughs> what's the opposite of defensive? A war that you want to initiate. Thank you. War, defense, war. Uh, Aggression or whatever it's called. So, um, so you will be excused and so really, the deferments from battle really talk about, if at their heart, they're really talking about what does the school of D think are the most important parts of being human? Exactly. That if you don't achieve them, you essentially haven't lived a full life, right? Because otherwise, why do you defer them, right? You would say, do you have a bone spur? Are you sick? Are you... That's not what they're deferred for. They're deferred for not being able to enjoy the things that make a life complete, that make a life worth living, essentially. It also says here that um, don't go to battle unless you have a society that you are wanting and worth fighting for, so home, agriculture. Nice. We saw that in the Second War, the Second World War, where everybody wanted to go. It was not a deferment battle at all. Everyone wanted to go. They lied about their age so they could go. So this is talking, so what does it, what does it tell us? Deuteronomy seems to believe what is most important is that you build a home and get to live in it. So that's what this is. I, I don't know why dedicated hancho, okay. It's not technically wrong, but that means it's a, something you do when you, when you move in, right? Like, so it, you, if you've built a home and haven't yet lived in it, you're, defer, you're deferred. If, you, if you've planted a vineyard, right, and you've not gotten to eat from it, uh, you don't eat from a tree in the ancient Israelite law code until the fifth year. Everything before that is God's. It's sacred and it is off limits. So till the fifth year. So if you've planted uh, two years ago and haven't been able to eat from your harvest, you are it's deferred. So this is primarily young people who are being deferred. 
Right. Because well, after a certain point, you're not in the army anyway. Right? Uh, so let him go back to his home, lest he die in battle, and another harvest it. Is there anyone who has, who has basically been betrothed, but has not yet uh, consummated the marriage? If so, they get a deferment, because otherwise you're betrothed, and you never got to enjoy the intimacy of what that allows for. The official shall go on addressing the troops, right, and say, if anyone is super afraid, now is the time <laughs> to bail, because you're going to essentially <coughs> spread panic. And we've seen what happens to the Israelites when that happens. It's never a good thing, um, right? So then the officials are done with their job, and then army commanders, and actually the, the, we know this word, pokade. We know this verb, don't we? Pakad, pokain, to a point, right? We've spent lots of time on that word in another place. You will appoint commanders to command the troops. So we have Shotrim, who just did their job. They leave the stage, and you put officials in charge of troops. What this suggests is that what, do, what does ancient Israel not have? Standing army. Correct. Ancient Israel did not have a standing army. Or why do you need to appoint right. commanders of troops? You already, if you have a standing army, you already have commanders of troops. You say, then the commanders come forward and take charge of their battalions, or whatever it's called. So, right, so, but it's, it's, you'll appoint them, which suggests it is not a standing army. I mean, there may be people that are trained to fight. I'm not saying there weren't probably professional mercenaries and other kinds of people who that was their career, you know, um, but you know, you're not gonna pick somebody who's never picked up a sword and say, okay, you're gonna command this group. But but there's not like some huge, you know, military system in place that's permanent. So it would be when the need or when an emer when a national emergency happened, that then you this is what happens. It's kind of interesting that they didn't have a standing army because so often they, they were, were in need of it. When did they, but they had order. Yeah, yeah. They do have kings when this is written. This is written. If you buy one scholarly line of arguing, this is written under King Josiah, the hero king, who, who idiot, dies in, in completely unnecessary battle, by the way. Completely unnecessary. We should read that text at some point. I just read it at Hartman. I'd never read this text. He, he doesn't allow Pharaoh to cross ancient Israel. And Pharaoh's like, my problem's not with you. I ought to fight that, that business over there. Just let me through. And Josiah decides, God will fight for us. You're not coming through our land. No way. Blah, 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 blah. And is killed in battle. At age, like, I don't know, 30. Which may explain a lot. I don't know. But, um, but right, so too much, too, and part of the lesson of Hartman was too much faith in God and you become an idiot. Right? And... And the other is, uh, I forget. Anyway, um, I forget what the other side of that argument was. All right, so, um, verse 10. All right, verse 10. <laughs> we're not this even, is tough, folks. We're not even the hard stuff yet. All right. That's not the text. <laughs> when you approach a town to attack it, you shall offer it terms of peace. If, if it responds peaceably and lets you in, 
all the people present there shall serve you as forced labor. However, Take a breath. It's okay. It gets worse. Take a breath. If it does not surrender to you, but would join battle with you, you shall lay siege to it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. You may, however... Take as your booty the women, the children, the livestock, and everything in the town, all its spoil, and enjoy the use of the spoil of your enemy, which the Lord your God gives you. Let's just finish out the horror. Go ahead. Thus you shall deal with all towns that lie very far from you, towns that do not belong to nations hereabout. Because? Uh, In the towns of the latter peoples, however, those are the ones that are near. Mm -hmm. Right which the Lord your God is giving you as a heritage, you shall not let a soul remain alive. No, you must proscribe them, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they lead you into doing all the abhorrent things that they have done for their gods, and you stand guilty before the Lord your God. Okay. one of those parasites? The parasites? Parasites. Parasites. All right. So, um, Hafrizi. The Prizi. All right. Um, all right. So, of course, this is horrifying. It's terrible. It's awful. It's the way of the. It's war. So, okay. So, number one, number one, it's war. Right? Every, we talk, we've talked about Israelites owning slaves. How did they get them? Oh, right. War. War. Right, so it's the ancient world. It was common. It was assumed. Your God fought for you. What we have here partly is you don't get to do whatever you want. So I know that's hard for us like to reconcile. We don't have to. The good news is we are not fundamentalists. I do not have to forgive this text. It is what it is. This is evidence of how horrifying life in the ancient world was, where how it is in many places still today, right? And what happens when you join theology to military activity? It's just always bad. bad. It's just always bad. So Israel was no better in some ways than all of its neighbors, in some ways, the fact that this is here says there's also limits on soldiers. Okay? If you want to take a woman as booty from, from conquering another city, you have to marry her. Right? Or make some kind of legal arrangement. And there's all kinds of laws about you have to cut her hair, you have to cut her nails, you have to let her mourn her family, right? Meaning cut off her hair. Make her as unattractive to you as possible. Let her be in your house weeping and wailing for her loved ones. Then decide if you still want her. You cannot drag her by the hair, rape her, and keep her in your basement till you're done with her. Right? So I'm, I'm, not, suggest, I'm not apologizing for this text in any way. I'm trying to lay out why it's here and what the realities were at the time uh, that it was written. And I want to read something else. Yeah. Does this mean the West Bank, according to Halakha, is never going to be given up? No. That, that, no. We're, we're done with this as it applies to the land of Israel. Where, where, where are we done with it? 
Is it because of reconstruction? Once we lost, once we lost control of the land of Israel, the rest of this, it doesn't mean anything because we didn't have control. Once 48 happens, there's nobody who's looking to this text to tell them what to do with the conquered enemy. So today, the ultra-Orthodox would disregard this? Well, they would say it doesn't hold till God comes. Mm-hmm. Some of it doesn't hold till God comes back, brings Messiah. We, we shouldn't be there anyway. God's not brought the third temple. God's not brought the Messiah. What the hell are we doing in Israel? According to the other, some Orthodox. Some, yeah, you're not some, saying that. Yeah. Some Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, that is their response. We shouldn't even be there. They're against Zionism. Right? They actively protest against Zionism because we shouldn't be there. We have to wait until God makes it so. You can't live under a heretical Israeli government. Like, that's, that's and, an abomination. And, oh, by the way, we don't need an army. <laughs> and, and we need an army. And you don't need to serve in that horrifying, yeah, that abysmal insult to God either. <laughs> right? You're doing the real fighting for God, which is learning in yeshiva. This is that's, of, the real, that's where the real battle is for the soul of the Jewish people. This is one of those texts I think Rabbi Rubin talked about this, where they read a text and all right, then all right, asked, sh- stop talking. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> giving it away. Wait, giving it away. Okay. He's been here too long. No. Um, right. So I was. I, I swear this is true. Sometimes I know I might extend the truth a little. This is literally the truth. I was reading this book in the bathtub the other night <laughs> as I was preparing because I had to give a, a Devar Torah on this parsha to the board of rabbis on Tuesday, so I was already reading these texts and looking at commentary and blah, blah, blah. I'm reading in the bathtub about a, I'm not going to spoil a plot at all, What's about, the it's called uh, The Lion's Game by Nelson DeMille. It is, it is a terrorist who is taking revenge on America for America's bombing of Libya, mm-hmm. murdering his entire family yeah. in 1986. He's driving in the car. He's in America. He's killed a plane load of people already. He says he recited random passages to himself from the Quran. Quote, kill the aggressors wherever you find them. Drive them out of the places from which they drove you. Fight them until Allah's religion is supreme. Fight for the cause of Allah with the devotion to him. Permission to take up arms is hereby given to those who are attacked. Allah has the power to grant them victory. Believers, fear Allah as you rightly should, and when death comes, die true Muslims. If you have suffered a defeat, so did the enemy. We alternate these victories among mankind so that Allah may know true believers and choose martyrs from among you, and that he may test the faithful and annihilate the infidels. Allah is the supreme plotter. These are various lines from the Quran. It's not one big text. So... I highlighted that because I'm like, holy buckets, right? We, so, so two things. One, we tend to react to this sometimes as liberal Jews, and it's easy to say, see, that, that is why I have nothing to do with that. This is exactly, this is exactly why. I won't touch it. How can you have any relationship to this, right? If that's in there, and... But, then I'm, do- I'm done, right? It is, it is very easy to go there. The, and, and those same people, if I read them this paragraph, those same Jews 
would say, that is not what is in most of the Quran, Amy. (laughs) And most Muslims do not look to these particular texts in any way to inform how they live. It was written at a certain time, right? Right. The prophet lived in a certain time. Most, so those Jews will defend, you know, Islam and Muslims, and of course, that's one little piece of the Quran. That's not most of it. The Muslims I know are lovely people. They would abhor that. They disagree with that, but they can't make that same argument for Torah. So that's that's one. On the other side. There are Jews who will say, well, this is a little different, right? Deuteronomy is a little, first of all, we're talking about the real God, (laughs) right? Number one. Number two, like we're talking about Israel, we're talking about the Holy Land, you know, we're talking about a direct order from that, right? So so it's a little different because of what was done to the Jews. Okay, whatever you say after it's a little different because, whatever you say, I am so sorry. How is that any different from what's written in this book? Any different. It's not any different. They're exactly the same. They are elements of a tradition that come about at a certain time in a certain context. And that context is you believe that truly these are orders from the divine. And it's truly, therefore, a war that is warranted Thank God we don't believe that. We're able to look at this text and say it was written at a certain time. Thank God we don't think that way anymore. And we have lots of exposition of Israel's um, own understanding of what's right and okay and not okay in war. They drop leaflets over villages they're about to bomb and say, get to safety, get out. We're going to bomb this at this time on this day. Right? So there's a huge amount of agony spent in the Israeli Defense Forces to try to figure out how to deal with a situation that is miserable no matter what way you slice it. You put women and children in a munitions factory and let everybody know they're there. What's the IDF supposed to do? Do you take out the munitions factory? How many women? What what ages do the kids have to be? So... I mean, I'm not, excusing, I'm not excusing or defending anything. I'm saying when we come to these really difficult texts, we come to these really difficult conversations. You know me. I just always feel like we have to try to be fair. I'm not, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying I like it. I'm not saying I, I don't want war. Who wants war? Just like us. They, they didn't want it either, right? And, and that is the reality that we're still living in and that we're still living with and you know here it's one thing I mean after 9-11 maybe it's a little different but you when you're in Israel you get what it means you may not want to deal with it but the place you just had pizza last week is rubble and there's just kind of a different awareness about the reality of the closeness of it all to you and more Katushas, you know, and now they have an app that tells you every time a Katusha is launched from somewhere. And we were on our trip and I said, turn that off. Because everybody's phone going ding, ding, ding. And everybody's like freaking. And I'm like, turn it off. It is completely unhelpful to you. It's not going to tell you whether it got through Iron Dome in time for you to do anything. Put it down. Turn it off. 
because you just freak out as an American being over there realizing how many Katushas come in every day. They're launched every day. What's north, south, stay road, forget about it, right? So, um, so okay, I'm, so I'm going to stop there preaching, and then I just want to look at one more sentence because then I want to go to somebody else's preaching. And blah, 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 blah. Oh, wait, oh, wait, the, other, the only other thing I want to say. For the towns that are proscribed, right, the ones where you put everyone to death, those were the only Canaanite cities that put in the mouth of Moses was to be about when you conquer the land. Though, you know, those cities, they have to be proscribed. Everybody gets put to death in those cities. Okay, we know from the archaeological record it didn't happen. So I just want to say that. I want to be very clear about that. There was like two cities that there was battles between Israelites and Canaanites, two. But by the time of the writing of Deuteronomy, one theory is that there were no more Canaanites. They were either all converted Yaoists now, they were good Yaoists, um, or there was so few of them that really their culture was less robust and there wasn't right as much. You just, so, so how do you explain the disappearance of the Canaanites? Right? Oh yeah, we were supposed to come. Right? It just never happened. So we, you, would, you see evidence of destruction in the archaeological level. You see evidence of fire. You see evidence of collapsed buildings. You, like, you can tell when a city has been destroyed and when it was destroyed. Because then there's a level of no occupation, right? Then it gets rebuilt, right? So you can tell when it was destroyed by looking at the dates of the soil around it. So um, it didn't happen. So that's, that's the good news. It's horrible that there's a theology that says it coulda, shoulda, woulda, oughta, but it didn't happen. Um, all right, so what, so no, wait, wait what, where's the thing I wanted to? Yes. When in your war against the city, you have to besiege it a long time in order to capture it. You must not destroy its trees, wielding an ax against them. You may eat of them, but you must not cut them down. Are trees of the field human to withdraw before you into the besieged city? Only trees that you know do not yield food must be dis- may be destroyed. You may cut them down for constructing siege works against the city that is waging war on you until it has been reduced. Okay. So all of this crazy talk and then this very odd thing about when you go to war, you can't cut down the enemy's fruit trees. It's like, okay, wait, what? Where did this come from? It isn't even you've got to eat. It's you may eat from them. But even if you have plenty of food, you cannot cut down their fruit trees. So Torah seems to say, are they human to withdraw into the city? Meaning humans have a choice whether to surrender to you or not. The trees don't. You're only bes- Remember, you're only besieging the city because... They didn't agree to your suing for peace. The trees didn't have a choice. All right, so let's look at this piece by Rabbi Rachel Goldenberg from the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Can I go back? Okay, George. Uh, When you say that uh, the Israelites did not destroy the Canaanites, all the Canaanites, uh, they disobeyed. Because Laura, no, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, I'm talking archaeology. Deuteronomy is written long after all that. Long after. 
This is written long after all that. It's hard to remember. I know, it's hard to, it's hard to like order it. Deuteronomy is written long after any of that. Canaan was already destroyed at this point. Oh, okay. It's already yeah. there are, the, the theory is there are no Canaanites around. How did that happen? Because they were supposed to kill them all. And they did. Yeah. But it's always hard for me, too, because I t- I'm so literal sometimes. That I'm not literal, but it's, I try to make things in a linear way. And it's like, wait, what? Wait, right, so, yeah. They're just saying, look what God did for us. All right. Judaism is not a pacifist tradition. As last week's Parsha and parts of this week's Parsha not quoted here remind us, the wars the Israelites wage against the inhabitants of the land are about annihilation of the enemy, which we know didn't happen. However, a number of selections from this week's Parsha show a different angle of the Torah on war that I think can shed light on our internal and external experiences of battle and and conflict in recent days and in general. That was intriguing to me as I read it this year, going, wow, never more have we needed some instruction on both internal and external battle and conflict, because that is all, I don't know about y'all, that's all I'm seeing, right? So then we get this whole piece of Torah that we just read, chapter 20, verses 5 through 7, right? Um, who's, Who's deferred? The group, of verses, the group of verses above speaks to all that can be lost and destroyed in battle and reminds us of what we value most. We value the safety and integrity of home. We value the planting and nurturing of, and nourishing of good things. We value love, connection, and joy. The Torah sets these qualities above everything that might be gained by going to war. As we see in 2010, when you approach a town to attack it, you shall offer terms of peace. You shall offer first shalom. And this is, appears in Akkadian as well that you need to offer the enemy um, the Akkadian term for shalom. So you drop the leaflets. Yes. 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 Well, actually, you sit down with their leadership first to say, can we work this out? Um, drop to the... I, I've, you have a color-highlighted copy, don't you? Okay, so the, the bottom line, the very first thing we must do is offer terms of peace. I loved how this gets, if you take it out of context, which the rabbis love to do, and so do all of our spiritual teachers, take it out of context. When you feel like you're ready to go to battle, what is the commandment? Offer terms of First, offer terms of shalom. Offer terms of peace. Amy, take a deep breath before you speak right now. Right? When I feel like I'm ready to go to battle, can I first... Sue for terms of peace with me. If we do find ourselves at war, we must also take care not to indulge the urge to destroy. And this is what she's, then she brings in this quote about the fruit trees. We are taught to privilege planting and sustaining life over building siege works. We are instructed to place cultivating the sources of nourishment above uprooting and destroying. And then she quotes a few earlier chapters, chapter 18, verse 13. You must be wholehearted, tamim, with Yotevafe, your God. What I see in these passages, especially this week, is a set of practices for shoring up wholeheartedness, awareness, and compassion when it feels that we are being called into battle. How do we work with the fear and anger that arises when we are confronted with an enemy, internal or external, that threatens ours or others' very being? Do we go to war? Do we run away? 
or is there another way? Right? Because those tend to be our instincts when we feel threatened, when we feel attacked, when our ideas or our political party are attacked. Right? When, when we feel attacked and we feel the need to go to battle, right? generally we either go to war or we run the other way when we're threatened. Right? That's just human nature. Other scientists want to argue, fee, f- fight, flee, or cooperate. That there is a human... Uh, I can't think. What, what is it called? An instinct. There is a third instinct, and that is to figure out how to cooperate, um, which I think is kind of what Torah is saying. See if you can't. I know it's tempting to just blow them up, but see if you can't figure out a way to cooperate first. If you can't, then you have two choices, fight or flee. Okay. So go to my next highlight on page three. So she talks about Lots of stuff that, that happened in her childhood. Her father was a rabbi. The KKK was marching. But so right, she's talking about all those kinds of instances where you might want to fight, where you might want to right protest and be in their faces and whatever. And and that that you're you're sometimes criticized for not quote unquote doing anything if you don't engage in those kinds of behaviors. So she said. Um, my kids actually go to a jiu-jitsu martial arts gym here in Queens. In my limited understanding in jiu-jitsu, when your opponent is coming at you, the object is to engage your adversary's energy and use it to flip them over, thereby disarming them and protecting yourself. So rather than come with your own punch, your own aggressive energy, and injuring them, the goal is to take what they're already throwing at you Use that, flip it, and they wind up disempowered, and you're safe. That there is another way to engage, even with horrible stuff coming at us. Drop down to my next highlight. When hatred arises, whether it comes from an external or internal place, the urge is very strong to either ignore, run away, or to effort fully in waging battle against it. Nonviolent jujitsu requires us to relax around the urges to flee or fight. Instead, we create a space where we can safely be with the feelings that hatred triggers in us, where we can lay down our weapons, and where we can bring compassion to ourselves and to others. In this way, we utilize the energy the quote-unquote enemy has aroused to flip the message from hate to love. This is speaking very profoundly to me right now um, because I'm as upset as anybody else and I'm as tempted as anybody else to say things out of a real sense of anger and defense and or I'm called to write something right now because of something that's happened and rabbi what's going to be our response and you as a rabbi need to respond and then part of me these days is going you know what can we take a deep breath (laughs) and like I am not giving some of this stuff any more attention than it actually deserves, which is not a lot. So, like, I mean, I'm truly there. And, like, I was feeling kind of like, am I wimping out? Am I afraid? Am I afraid I'm going to get fired? Am I afraid I'm not leading? Am I, what am I, am I afraid? Is that what's happening? And then I realized as I was reading this, I'm like, no, I'm so tired of it that part of me feels that we've got to be called into another, not all the time, but we've got to develop another response to what's going on. Because this one is not working. And I don't know about y'all, but I feel sometimes my adrenals are shot. 
I'm afraid for my immune system right now because we just we're, we walk around in such a state of and forget the TV. I just won't even watch CNN right now. I won't watch. I just can't watch it right now. So. And of course, full disclosure is I'm a rabbi coming up to high holidays. So there's no, there's no way to read anything right now without thinking about high holidays. I mean, what, what, is, what am I feeling right now? What's going on? What am I feeling called to? And I'm, this is really something that spoke really deeply to me when I studied it um, this week in preparation for, for learning with you. Is, um, is how, how do we figure out a way to use the awful energy coming at us and flip it by our response, not of, not of denial, but of I'm going to stay calm and I'm going to stay loving to myself, which means I'm not putting myself in the path of a lot of that stuff anymore if I can help it. Um, I'll, I'll know what I need to know. Trust me. Like, you know, I'll hear what I need to know. Um, anyway, so I'll let her say it. Um, so go, go to the next page. She says, by cleaving to this practice, we do do several things. It isn't doing nothing. She said, we bring love to ourselves by not exposing ourselves directly to hateful language and violence and by engaging in prayer, song, learning, and other wholesome work. She's saying that is doing something because that is constructing us, right, in a way that allows us to be able to hold our footing and be able to flip what comes at us without flipping ourselves. We extend love to others by inviting them into a safe community space. Can we create a safe community space in which to invite people? That's not easy right now, right? That is not easy right now. We show our children and the community that the forces of love are stronger than those of hate. And I would say the forces for unity are stronger than the forces that want to tear us apart. We have to figure out how to do this as the Jewish people. We have to. I told you Donnell Hartman said to us, the Hartman Center's there, to be sure that at least we're having conversations that give us a shot at stopping the Jewish people from walking away from each other. That was about the Israel-America-Jewish relationship. I'm talking about the America-Jew-to-Jew relationship. How do we create communities and conversation and an environment and an atmosphere that we help ensure that the Jewish people do not, on our watch, walk away from each other. I'm very concerned about this right now. Very concerned, both on the right and on the left when we talk about being Americans, but within the Jewish community, I'm very concerned about this. We draw the press and the public's attention towards that space of love and away from displays of hate. So she was talking about a KKK rally. They did an interfaith gathering of peace and singing and whatever, which got way more coverage than the KKK rally. And no one was at the KKK rally. They were all at this other gathering. Rather than being in the faces of the Klansmen, they, they were doing something, right, affirming other stuff. And that's what made the headlines. Uh, we remove a visible target for hate groups at which they might aim their hatred, sucking the energy away from their message. And we show our public officials that the true power lies in the, quote, beloved community, to use the words of Dr. King. 
And these troubling times, may we and all living beings, human and non-human, and the trees, be blessed with safety, strength, peace, compassion, joy, and ease. May all enmity, internal and external, melt in the embrace of loving kindness. May the energy of hatred and separation be disarmed and transformed into awareness of the connection that truly binds all beings into one. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.